So we are continuing on in our Picture of God series, uh, and we're, like Tony talked about, we're three weeks away from celebrating Easter, and in Jesus' uh, life and ministry, he's rapidly approaching uh, his crucifixion outside of Jerusalem. He's, he's moving closer and closer, and the, the, the tension is building, and so the, the narrative I'm going to tell you today is from the book of John, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to John 11. Um, and, and feel free to, to read along. I'll be bouncing in and out of that today. Um, so I'd like to start by, by asking you a question. How do you, how do you handle stress? How do you handle crises? Okay, the crisis plural. Like how, how do you handle these things in your life? And, and, and maybe more importantly for today, how do you wish other people would treat you in the midst of your crisis? What do you want from other people? Do you, are, are you the type of person that, that wants someone to come and, and when you present the problem to speak truth to you, to, to, to speak maybe a solution or objective reality to help you come up with maybe a fix for the situation? You know, you're more on the, the, the logical, like processing it side of things. Or, or maybe in the midst of your crisis, are you more on the emotional side of things, the sensitive side of things? And really, you'd prefer that somebody just came and sat with you. Somebody was just present with you, mourning with you, maybe crying with you or saying, this stinks, and saying, I'm sorry this is happening. See, there's two different things, right? You process it one way, you're looking for truth. Another way, maybe you're looking for tears and comfort. And, or maybe you're like me, I kind of bounce back and forth between those things. Sometimes I want to fix, sometimes I want someone to just say, this stinks, and just to be in it with me. Well, in today's narrative, this story about Jesus, we get to see a little bit more of how God responds to people who are in a serious crisis and what he brings to the table in the midst of, of walking with them. And so, uh, like I said, if you, if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to John 11, and we're going to look and see sort of how this happens. Well, before John 11, obviously there's John 10, and at the end of John 10, the author tells us that, that Jesus has found himself in a situation where he's gone to Jerusalem for Hanukkah. He's celebrating the Feast of Dedication, as it's called. And, and while he's there, he, he makes these claims that, that he gets accused of being blasphemous because he makes a claim that he's the Son of God, that he is one with God. And the Pharisees and the rulers become so overwhelmed by, by the anger of this that they pick up stones to stone him. Like they weren't, They're going to kill him for this blasphemy in their minds. And Jesus starts arguing with them a little bit more and contending with them and, and, and trying to explain this more to them. And it says they try to seize him again. They try to kidnap him and take him away. But he ends up fleeing and getting out of the scene. Um, they were upset with him because they know that if he starts riling people up and bringing about a revolution like this, like they're thinking is going to happen, that their Roman occupiers will come and crush them. So they're doing everything they can to crush Jesus so he doesn't upset their political and their religious power. So this tension is starting to build around Jesus. This pressure cooker is, is heating up. The crowds are swelling because they think they've got a heroic messianic leader. The leaders are trying to stone him and seize him. So it says that he goes back across the Jordan River. He goes east away from Jerusalem, and he crosses back over the Jordan River into the area where John the Baptist had been doing his ministry. So if you remember, we talked about this way back at the beginning of this series. Jesus goes back to where he was baptized, where he'd been led out into the desert by the Spirit, where he was tempted and where he did battle with the enemy. And so he's out of view of Jerusalem and the temple. He's left that pressure cooker behind, and he's gone to someplace a little bit quieter, out away from 
the, the main pressure. It'd be sort of like if I was wanted or in trouble in Bethlehem, if I went to Lehighton for a little while to hang out, like just to go and lay low and be out of the scene for a little while. So leading into John 11, that's sort of what's happening. And the narrative continues and picks up in John 11 a few months later. Okay, if that happened in the winter, we're now into the springtime in John 11. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this uh, kind of a little bit of a verse at a time here. It says now in verse, uh, verse 1, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany. Now, Bethany is, is a combination of Hebrew words and even in Arabic, uh, it, it sounds the same thing. It's, it's Beit Ani or, or Beit Anya, which means uh, house of the poor or, or house of affliction. It's, it's traditionally known that, that to become a place of like a leper colony where, where people would bring the poor and the sick and they would rest them there and they would heal them up there. And so it's sort of this place that has a little bit of a reputation to it of being a place where sick people go. It's also a place where Galileans from the north, when they were coming to Passover, would come through Bethany and they would rest there before they would go the one and a half miles up into Jerusalem, up on the mountain there. And so really, it's only a mile and a half away, Bethany is, from the temple, from Jerusalem. It's so close, yet it's actually out of view of the temple. Like, you can't look from Bethany to the temple, and from the temple, they can't see into Bethany. They, don't, they can't see the sickness that's there, the hurt that's there, the pain that's there. And whether that was intentional or not, there's some kind of distance between the priests and the temple and the people who are sick and hurting down in Bethany. It's sort of like, uh, like a tall skyscraper in Manhattan. Like, you can be up there and not see all the pain that's happening down on the streets. Um, Jess and I, when we were in college, we were part of this thing called Manhattan Gospel Team. And there was Brooklyn Gospel Team and Manhattan. And, those. and so as part of the, the gospel team, we, uh, as a group of college students, would go into uh, lower Manhattan and we would do ministry in these poor apartment complexes. We would like go door to door, and I can't believe that parents let this happen, but we would just like literally go door to door in apartment buildings and ask for kids to come out and play with us and they would come and play. And these little kids would come out and play basketball with us and play sports with us and totally school us in basketball and, and you know, just abuse us on the courts. And, and, but we would hang out with them and tell them about the love of Jesus and care for them, just give them the time of day. And these kids had nothing. They, they had seen terrible violence in their homes, broken marriages and families and living off of food stamps. But meanwhile, it was in the shadows of the World Trade Center buildings. And so, like, we're down here playing with these kids, and meanwhile, they're living on food stamps, and the people up here are making their thousands of dollars and millions of dollars and going home to the suburbs. And it was just such this dichotomy, but that's sort of what's, what's happening here in this story, that, that Bethany is this place of poverty, this place of sickness, and meanwhile, the temple is just out of view. It's totally off at a distance, totally out of view of Bethany. So John says, Lazarus was, was from Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair, which you can read earlier in the book or later in the book, depending on how you read it. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Talking about Lazarus. They knew that Jesus was was staying across the river, across the Jordan River, east of them, about a day's journey away. So they, they send word to him. They send this messenger, go and get Jesus and tell him that Lazarus is sick. They said, the one you love is sick. It's clear that Jesus has a deep relationship with Lazarus. 
that they're friends, that, that they are close friends, that he loves them, that he loves Mary and Martha, that he loves Lazarus, that they were his friends. They were possibly even his disciples and traveled around with him. They had spent special times in their home together, honoring Jesus and sharing meals together and intense conversations together. So they send someone to go and get Jesus and to bring him back because Lazarus is sick. Uh, so that it says, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Take note of something here, and I'll, I'll pick up on this in a couple minutes, that, that Jesus sees this situation radically different than they do. He sees it radically different than Mary and Martha do. He's not in a rush to get there, and he knows that God will, the glory of God will increase by not going and doing something right away about this situation. I'll come back to that in a minute. So then he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Waits a couple of days, and then he says, let's go back towards Jerusalem. But rabbi, they said, or I mean teacher, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going to go back? They're like, are you kidding me? Like, you want to go back into that situation? Just a few months ago when we were near Jerusalem, they tried to stone you and kidnap you. Like, do we need to remind you of why we shouldn't be doing this? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. This is like this weird riddle that Jesus is saying. Like, it's this weird thing, right? So... It's sort of confusing, but within the context of the book of John, if you've been reading John up to this point, if you read in John chapter 9, Jesus says, he is the light of the world. He says, I'm the light of the world, and and as long as there's light in the world, I need to be about my Father's work. So in this situation, he's saying, look, I'm the light of the world. If you walk in the light of the world, you won't stumble. It'll be okay. You're with me. I'm with you. We need to do my Father's work. That's a little bit of what's behind this statement. He says, so we're going back. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had, John writes this, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, He's dead, Jim. Okay, which, if you follow Star Trek, you know that that's a meme. Okay, so he tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He's dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. For your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Do you see it again here, this, this other vision or clarity that Jesus has? He, he, earlier he says, it's for God's and my glory that this is happening. And here he has his eyes on the disciples and how it's for their belief that this is happening. Now, I, I don't think scripture teaches that, that every bad thing that happens there must be some lesson behind it. So if we just believe and learn the lesson, then it will get better and it will go away. I don't really think that's what Scripture teaches. However, I think Scripture does teach that somehow all things are for God's glory. That somehow all things happen for God's glory, for God's fame. And that if we keep our eye on that and have faith enough to persevere through tough times, that somehow all of the events in the world, even the things that were brought about by our own sinful humanity, through all of those things, God is somehow working them together for, for his glory, for his fame, <clears throat> and somehow for our good. Somehow for the good of, of us, who, we who believe and follow him. I think that's what Paul means in Romans 8 when, when he says that God works all these things together for the good of those who love him 
and for those who have been called according to his purpose, his purposes, his, his glory. It's for their good and his purpose. Always working these two things together. His glory, our good. His glory, our good. Now, one of my hopes, honestly, as a pastor and as a discipler and preacher and, and friend is, is to help us grasp this picture of God that, that he sees differently. That God sees things differently than we do. But, but that he loves you so much that he's working these things together somehow for your good and for his glory, but that he loves you and he can see more than you can. He can see wider than you can. He can see further into the future than you can. And somehow he brings these things together for his glory and for our good. So Jesus has his eyes on other things. He says, I'm going to go now to Lazarus. It's for your sake that I've waited. And in verse 16, it says, then Thomas, also known as Didymus or Thomas the twin, excuse me, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Like, I don't know if he's being cynical or if he's just like, hey, I'm with Jesus. I'm going even to the death. He's like, well, we might as well go. Let's go die with him. And so he says, let's go. So the disciples, you know, they mount up and they, they walk, start walking from uh, across the Jordan River towards Bethany. So on his arrival, it says that Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles. It was like a mile and a half from Jerusalem. <coughs> and many Jews, many people had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. So it's, he's been in the tomb four days. He, he must have died somewhat shortly after the messenger left. So they send the messenger. They say, go tell Jesus across the Jordan to come back. They didn't have a text message to say, hey, he died, come home. Like, he still goes, and he gets there. Jesus waits a couple of days, and then he comes. So by the time Jesus gets there, it's too late. It's been four days that Lazarus has been dead and is in the tomb. Meanwhile, lots of people are coming and joining Mary and Martha to mourn with them. They're coming to their home to spend time with them, to comfort them, <clears throat> and, and, and to, to grieve with them. And this, So mourning, you need to understand this, mourning for a Jewish person means like loud wailing. It's almost like this theatrical, I don't mean disingenuous, but this theatrical thing of like loud wailing and crying and, and, and weeping, joining the person, giving them permission to weep and to mourn deeply with them. So that this word there in the Greek for weeping means loud crying. Verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, and when he's showing up on the scene, he was probably drawing a crowd and taking forever to get there. Maybe somebody heard he was coming, goes and tells Martha, when she, when she hears that, she's, that he's coming, she went out to meet him. So Martha goes out to meet him, but it says Mary stayed at home. The image here is, is of Martha leaving unattended. She goes out by herself. She gets away to, <clears throat> to see Jesus by herself while the crowd stays back with Mary to mourn at the house. There's this interesting, in my mind, personality dichotomy that starts to happen here. We start to see it played out. We've seen it played out earlier in the gospel as well. Martha is the industrious one who just wants to serve. She has work to do, so she, she leaves quietly to handle things on her own. She goes out to see Jesus somewhat discreetly. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Now, a lot of times we can read this with like, she's asking, why weren't you here? Why didn't you come and do something about this? I, I don't know that that's what she's doing. I actually kind of hear it as faith on her part. She's saying, if you'd been here, you could have healed him. 
If you'd been here, I believe that you could have done something about this, Jesus. But either way, there's this, there's this regret on the part of Martha. She's sad that Jesus didn't get there in time. And, but at the same time, she also doesn't have the same vision. She didn't have the same vision that Jesus did. She didn't see it the way that he did. So verse 23, Jesus says to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I, I know this. I, I, this is, there's this faith again on the part of Martha that he was a good Jew. He was a person of the covenant, so he will be raised up at the last day. Understand something. They don't have the concept of Jesus dying and being resurrected, so they believe in the resurrection. They haven't seen that yet. She believes in, that, that God of you know, their mind, God, the Jewish God, will be the one who raises Jewish believers, Jewish followers of the covenant, that God will raise him from the dead someday. It has nothing to do with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It has to do with God acting on behalf of Lazarus. So verse 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. <clears throat> the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. She calls her quietly aside. So I don't know if you can sense it here, but Jesus is saying, yes, God will resurrect your brother. He will do this. By the way, I am the resurrection. I am the full life that's to come. Do you believe this, Martha? And she answers him with more faith. Yes, I believe that. I believe that you are the one. What she's saying is, I believe that you are God. If God is the one that does the resurrecting and you're saying you're the resurrection, you are saying you're God. I believe that, Jesus. Friends, Jesus is meeting with this woman of strength and self-sufficiency here for, for whom things seem to be quite black and white. If you read her sort of story throughout the Gospels, Object, objective truth was key for her. She, she knew her role in the home was to, was to be a servant. This is the way she sees it, that she's to be a servant. She's not to draw attention to herself. She's, she's to operate based on truth and right and wrong. And here Jesus is meeting her where she's at in this moment, in this instance, and he has this ministry of truth to her. He speaks the truth to her and inspires her faith and her hope to arise with, with up in the midst of her brokenness and her pain that he will restore Lazarus. This is a beautiful picture of God that Jesus is painting here for us, that God came into our midst and let himself be the things we've talked about, approachable, interruptible, found by the humble. And in this moment, Jesus is exactly what Martha needed. He's exactly what she needed. I don't know that she could fully grasp all of the implications of believing that he was God, of believing that he was the Messiah, but she encountered enough truth in that moment that she was able to leave assured, to leave faithful enough that all would be okay, that it would be well. And isn't, that, isn't that often what God gives us? Like, just, just enough truth, just enough comprehension to take the next step. Just a little bit of a step to do, to do another day in, in the unhappy marriage. To give a little more grace to the antagonistic teenager in our home. To keep calm in the midst of a parent with Alzheimer's. Just, just enough truth to have just enough faith for today. Like just enough daily bread for today. To move and be sustained today. 
That's what he's doing for Martha here. He's meeting her in the truth that she needed, and he's inspiring hope inside of her. So verse 27 again says, Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, this is great. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Like, I don't know if you can pick up on the comedy of this a little bit. To me, I find it comical. Martha has found a way to sneak out quietly, unattended, going to speak to Jesus and him alone. She sneaks back into the house and is able to have a quiet conversation with Mary off to the side and say, hey, Jesus is here. He wants to see you. Go see him. And the next thing we know, Mary is leaving in such a dramatic fashion that everyone notices, and the whole wailing and mourning party run out with her. Like, to me, this, again, there's this dichotomy of these personalities, like two sisters, two totally different personalities. Mary is, is, is the one that sat at Jesus' feet, emotionally connecting him while Martha was serving in the house. Remember this story? She's more emotionally connected to others, while, while Martha is more, I would say, like vocationally connected. She has work to do. There's, there's a time for both, though. So we see this, this dichotomy, these personalities. And so verse 32 says that when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she falls at his feet. Again, like this, just this emotional response to Jesus being there. Falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. We see these words deeply moved and troubled a few times in the midst of this passage and after the end of the passage. And in the Greek, it carries with it, the, the, the words there carry with it this idea of like, like a bubbling rage coming up inside of Jesus. It's this thing that's building. It's this indignation. And and. There's also a connotation of like a war horse on a battlefield snorting and, and ready to charge into the heat of battle. It's this thing that's pent up but ready to be released. Jesus, I would say, is truly feeling the weight of the situation, the weight of his humanity, I believe, the weight of humanity and sin and brokenness, and the weight of what's to come for him. So Jesus goes on in 34 and, and says, where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he have opened the eyes of the blind man? Like, if he opened the eyes of the blind man, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? They don't really believe, like, like, what is Jesus doing? Could he have even done this? But friends, do you see how Jesus responds to Mary? Where Martha connected to Jesus over, over like factual hope, here Mary is again connecting to Jesus with emotional hope. And, and how does Jesus connect back to her? By weeping with her. By weeping with her. To Martha, Jesus showed himself to be fully God and offers a ministry of truth. And to Mary, Jesus shows himself to be fully human, weeping with her and offering a ministry of tears to her. Interestingly enough, the, the author John, who is recounting this narrative for us, actually chooses a different word here for the word weeping. I find this fascinating. The, the word weeping in the rest of the passage, like I said, means crying loudly, this aggressive, loud wailing. But the word that he chooses to use for weeping for Jesus means he cried quietly. Quietly. 
He cried quietly. Jesus is not joining in some trumped-up emotionalism and some theatrics, this fake crying. He's, he's truly feeling the depth of pain and frustration that Mary is feeling, and it's coming out of him. Like, have you ever felt this before where you're so frustrated with a situation, so saddened by a situation that the tears just start welling up inside of you? You're not wailing. You're not making drama. It's just coming out of you. Like, you can't help it because of the emotion. I think that's what Jesus is experiencing here. He knows how this story ends, right? He's God. He knows what's coming. But he still allows himself to experience the fullness of human frustration and pain. There are times that we need this, right? Like there are times when when things are just so bad that we simply need someone to come and to cry with us, to be sad with us, to say this just plain stinks with us. Jesus is doing that for Mary here. All too often, I believe that when faced with grief and frustration of a broken life, the the well-intentioned or maybe self-righteous religious folks will say, God's got a plan here. Don't worry about it. God's got a plan. He doesn't give us anything we can't handle. He doesn't give us anything we can't handle. And I've done that. Okay, like I've said these things to people when not knowing what to say to someone who's grieving or broken. I've said those things. But listen, I wrote, it's a steaming pile of horse dung. Like, it, it, it is. Like, This is not true. There are plenty of things that we can't handle in this life, right? Like, let's just be honest. There are plenty of things that we can't handle, like the death of a sibling, the loss of a job, a wayward child, child, a relationship that just comes crashing down, a house fire, cancer, dementia of a parent. Like, need I say more? There are plenty of things that we can't handle in this life. So to just say, well, God doesn't give us anything we can't handle. It's like, well, actually he does. There's plenty that happens that we can't handle. And the problem with this is twofold. That's not scriptural. Can I just say that? This concept of God doesn't give us anything we can't handle is not scriptural. It's a misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 10 when Paul says, there are situations you get into where you're going to be tempted, but God doesn't give you anything you can't handle. He gives you a way out of it. When it comes to temptation, God gives you a way out. You can flee. You can run. You can ask for help. So it's kind of a misinterpretation of that passage. But the problem for me is that it leads to this mentality of, God doesn't give me anything I can't handle. I must be able to handle this. So now we're looking to ourselves saying, I better be able to handle this. I better be able to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I just have to be strong, and it'll all be okay. God clearly wouldn't give me anything I can't handle. That's just crazy talk. Jesus is modeling here for us in this text what we're supposed to run to in tough times. Him. We're supposed to go to him. And what we find is a God that speaks the truth of who he is and inspires hope and what he's capable of. And we find a friend that weeps with us and who comforts us. Sometimes that's in the form of an actual brother or sister in the family of God. Sometimes it's a counselor. Sometimes it's a pastor. Sometimes it's scripture. Sometimes it's prayer. Sometimes it's singing. But someone, somehow, we are supposed to experience someone weeping with us saying, this stinks. This is unfortunate. Let's go to Jesus together about this. Recently, I've been through some, some hard times that some of you know about, and, and people have offered me well-intentioned what I would call Christianese, like this other language that only Christians use, and these, these, these trite sayings, and they don't really hold water to me, at least to me. Whereas others have come and simply given me a hug and said, I'm sorry, this stinks. This stinks that this is happening. They were being Jesus, weeping, with me. 
I hope you've experienced that. And if you haven't, I hope that you would be a person who cries with people, but also allows people to cry with you and meet you where you're at in your brokenness. And so religion responds to grief and brokenness with trite sayings and telling you to look to yourself to stay strong and just have faith. And the world responds to grief and brokenness with either cold emotionlessness or or ignoring it and pretending it doesn't exist or motivational speeches like he's gone too soon. God, God must have needed another angel. Like, what does that mean? Like that, that doesn't, it's not helpful. Like, like doesn't kill you. It'll make you stronger. Okay. Like that's not really helpful or the world will just drink it away, sex it away, money it away. Like and it, just pretending it doesn't exist. Like the, but a lot of times in the church, we find like some mixture of these two things, the worldly way and the, the religious way. And I want to read something. Uh, this book, emotionally healthy spirituality, uh, by Pete Scazzaro. I recommend this book. Um, it's great. Just talking about emotional health in the midst of our spiritual lives. He tells a story. I want to read this to you. He says, Hilda, a young Jewish student, worked part-time at a New York university. When a fellow student, a Christian, died of cancer, she attended the funeral. As the service began, the family announced that this would not be a time for mourning, but a celebration. They remembered and thanked God for the gift of their daughter who died. They sang songs of praise. They quoted scripture about God working all things together for good to those who love him. In disbelief, Hilda sat through the service wondering, are these people for real? Do they have any emotions at all? By the time she returned to work the next day, she was angry, livid that the tragic loss of her friend had been treated so glibly. Finally, she exploded at lunch to another Christian acquaintance at her job who also attended the funeral. Don't you people cry or mourn? I don't get it. Are you people human beings at all? Certainly, now listen to this, certainly we are not to cry or mourn like those who are without hope in Christ. Paul makes that very clear, that we mourn, but like those who have hope in the resurrection of Jesus. But we do cry and grieve. Jane, a member of our small group some time ago, was becoming increasingly aware of how much she had lost in her childhood, her teen and young adult years. Our group was in the third week of exploring how both our families and ethnic histories have impacted our present lives. Jane looked terrified. For the first time in her life, she was turning toward her losses, not avoiding them. One week after group, I asked her how she was doing. She responded with her head down in a whisper. Pete, I keep thinking that if I continue going down this road of truly grieving my losses, I might die. Turning towards, and listen to what he says, turning towards our pain is counterintuitive. But in fact, the heart of Christianity is is that the way to life is through death. The pathway to resurrection is through crucifixion. Of course, it preaches easier than it lives, he says. Gerald's sister, in his book, A Grace Disguised, reflects on the loss of his mother, wife, and young daughter from a horrific car accident. He chose not to run from his loss, but to walk directly into the darkness, letting the experience of that overwhelming tragedy transform his life. Now listen to this. He learned that the quickest way to reach the sun and the light of day is not to run west chasing after it, but to head east into the darkness until you finally reach the sunrise. To head east into the darkness looking for the sunrise. Friends, what Jesus wants to do is meet us in the darkness and weep with us to walk with us into the darkness, to find the light on the other side that ultimately is him. He'll bring us the truths from scriptures, through prayer, through others, and sometimes he'll meet us in tears, walking with us in quiet mourning, 
just crying with us saying, yeah, this is terrible. This stinks. So verse 38 to finish up here, Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Again, the words deeply moved. Jesus is feeling the tension of the moment and then he's facing death and sin head on. But he's also feeling something else. He's feeling anxiety over what will happen to him if he actually does this and goes through with it. If he actually raises Lazarus from the dead. You see, I think Jesus waited on the other side of the river because he was praying to God saying, do you really want me to do this? Do you really want me to go back towards Jerusalem because I'm sure to face death if I do this? You really want me to go back there? So finally, he, he makes the decision to go and he goes and, and, and Lazarus is already dead and, and here now he stands in Bethany. The crowds have followed from across the Jordan. New crowds have come. They've been picking up more along the way. Now the mourners have come with Mary and everyone's standing there waiting to see what Jesus is going to do outside of the tomb. So this feeling wells up inside of him. It says, once more deeply moved, he says, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor. Literally, the Greek there is, he stunk. Like, this is what he's saying. We can't do this. Don't do this. Then Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. It's, like, it's hard for me to do this justice because I don't want to scream and yell at you, but like, he's bellowing this. He's so, there's so much angst inside of him, like this war. So he says, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take the grave clothes off and let him go. But now he'd done it. (laughs) Now Jesus has really done it. He brought truth to Martha when she needed it. He wept with Mary when she needed it. And he brings glory to God in himself when he raises Lazarus from the dead. But now the Pharisees get wind of this. They hear that he's done this. And they they convene a hearing, a private hearing about him. And they say, what are we going to do about this guy? What are we going to do about this guy that's rallying all these people to him? He's doing all these signs. If he keeps going with this, Rome is going to come and they're going to take away our temple. They're going to take away our country. They're going to take away our political power. What are we going to do about him? It says in verse 53 that from that day on, they plotted to take his life. You see what happens here. They plotted to take his life. The course is now set. It's only a matter of time now until Jesus is caught and finally brought into this mock trial. The Jewish leaders can, can no longer tolerate what he's doing, and they want him killed, and they will do nothing until they get it. This is the picture of our God that Jesus paints for us here. Our God is not just, just the divine that tells us to get over our humanity and all will be well, and he's not just some human leader that says, I've got some great claim on God, be like me, and becomes a cult leader. He's fully God, fully man. He is both the bedrock of truth of the resurrection and he is emotional and meek. This is the picture of our God that Jesus paints for us, the picture that Jesus has slowly been painting throughout his ministry, that life is more than we can handle, but he came to join us in this life, fully God and fully man. So how do we know he's loving and trustworthy? How can we believe that his ministry of truth and his ministry of tears This story points out he's willing to exchange his life for the life of Lazarus by heading back to Bethany, ultimately towards Jerusalem where he would surely be killed. 
He was willing to not only see the pain, but to enter into the house of affliction and do something about it, to speak truth to it and to mourn it. Now listen, you might not be facing the death of of a loved one that, that you need truth and tears for, but what about the death of a relationship? Can you believe that Jesus has the power to restore it to full life? What about the death of of a job? Do you need the truth that Jesus is the resurrection, that he has resurrection power? Do you need the truth that that maybe there's more than that you're not seeing and that somehow it could be for God's glory and good and you're good that you've lost that job or that client or that deal or that you got that bad grade or had that that thing happen on the, the, the ball field? Like, could there be something else happening? What about the death of your dreams? You had these great dreams when you were younger. Do you need Jesus to weep with you and say, yeah, that, that stinks that that happened. I agree. That's sad that that dream is over. Are you simply trying to emotionally muscle your way through it and say, I've just got to be strong. I've, just, I've got to pull myself up on my bootstraps. Or are you taking time in prayer to hear from Jesus, hear him weeping with you, crying with you, fully human? Are you sharing the burden with community and saying, will you walk with me in this? Will you help me carry this burden and allowing them to put their arms around you and, and walk with you in grief? Friends, ultimately, Jesus didn't just leave the safety of the wilderness across the Jordan to speak truth to Martha and to shed tears with Mary and to raise Lazarus from the dead. He left the safety of heaven, okay? He left the safety of, of the, and the gloriousness of the true temple in heaven to come into our world of affliction, our house of affliction. He came down off the mountain and left the temple and entered into our house of affliction to give us a ministry of truth and life, to cry with us, to shed tears of meekness and grief, and to exchange his life for ours so that we can have full life. This is the picture of our God. Would you join me in believing it and finding full life in Jesus? Would you pray with me?